What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda, and I'm joined by co-hosts Dr. Amir Rose Davis and Lindsay Gibbs. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about Super Bowl LV, or 55, discussing how the event became a spectacle par excellence, who we're rooting for, and if the representation of African Americans and women can change our jaded view of it. Then we'll burn all the garbage in sports for this week and celebrate people trying to change it all. Naomi Osaka, tennis star and now part owner of the North Carolina Courage NWSL team. As I told people... So staying on the Super Bowl theme, I wanted to ask you two what your favorite halftime show performance is. Amira? Yeah, I would have to say it is Beyonce's second appearance when she like appeared with um Bruno Mars because the night before she dropped Formation which is shot in New Orleans you know with the drowning um New Orleans PD car and it was a very black track and everybody was going wild about it but also like there's no way she's gonna perform this at the Super Bowl right tomorrow like she can't like we know what the Super Bowl is and is not and then not only did she perform it, but she came out and her and her dancers were dressed like um, inspired by the Black Panthers. And that spawned the SNL to do that very funny skit like the day people found out Beyonce was black. Guys, I don't understand this new song. Hot sauce in my bag swag? What does that mean? Maybe the song isn't for us. But usually everything is! I mean, I think really represents a, a corporate shift, a calculated shift in her image. But I think that was my favorite moment because the performance was tremendous, but also it was just fun to watch white people be that shook. <laughs> what about you, Lynn? So the right answer is Prince, I feel like. And I love that one, don't get me wrong. But I also love the, like... TRL like mashup like uh, Super Bowl shows that we used to have with like Britney Spears, Aerosmith, and Shania Twain, things like that. <laughs> like I just like miss those days. I was hold on, I was looking up a few of them because I was trying to remember if they were just as wild as I remembered, and it was. It was like in two thousand and one, Aerosmith, NSYNC, Britney Spears, Mary J. Blige, and Nelly. Like that's just like a TRL show. Um, and Vulture ranked that one fourth, by the way. And then O four, <laughs> which is famous for uh, bad reasons for Justin Timberlake. Uh, Throwing, throwing Janet, Janet Jackson under the, under the bus. bus and also for the Panthers losing the Super Bowl but uh, to a team we don't talk to who? about. To who? We don't talk to about who? We don't talk about it. Um, <laughs> but that was Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, Jessica Simpson, Kid Rock, Nelly, and P. Diddy. <laughs> like, what? 
response. And listen, both of those were rated in the top uh, 10 for Vulture. So I just, you know, there's just something to be said about like picking names out of a hat. <laughs> I mean, I think my favorite is more of an appearance than a full performance, which is last year's Bad Bunny. Just his little quick bit with Shakira and J-Lo. And I just felt happy that it was enough to put, you know, the genius in front of um, some audience that he didn't have. He was great. My kids and I were happy as hell. And his glam shots with J-Lo after were just absolutely hilarious and beautiful because he obviously was had a poster of her on his wall as a kid. When I found the one that might, might win, Shania Twain, No Doubt, and Sting, <laughs> 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so as we mentioned at the top of the show, the 55th Super Bowl will be played between Tampa Bay and Kansas City on February 7th in Tampa, Florida. The Super Bowl began as a rather lackluster affair between the top NFL team and the rival league champions from the AFL. The first game didn't sell out. It was played in 1967 at the LA Coliseum between the Packers and Kansas City, actually. So... From the beginning, there were a lot of critics, as there always have been, of football in general for the violence of the sport. And even Hunter S. Thompson's pieces in Rolling Stone in the early 70s already were sort of tearing at the commercialization of the sport and the way in which he thought it encouraged violence in a very violent society. Amira, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it, how it went from a relatively simple affair to the grand spectacle it is today. Yeah, I mean, violence is definitely the way into this, particularly militarism. And we can see this like creeping up in many different ways. Like very early on at the fourth Super Bowl in New Orleans, for example, this was in 1970, they reenacted the Battle of New Orleans from the War of 1812. No one even knows that battle. That is just so intense. Oh, well, exactly. And the, and they also blasted off like cannons and there's like so much smoke going through the stadium <laughs> that half the people couldn't even see the people who were pretending to be dead on the football field. So like quickly, you know, the next year they, they started using Air Force jets to do a flyover, you know, but that one they like, came late, right? And so it wasn't a perfected wedding of patriotism, um, but it certainly pointed to a way that militarism and football were kind of being tied together. And you could see that in the language, right? You could see that when they talked about a ground game or an air attack or, you know, a blitz, you know, so these militaristic terms are already in the game. But if you go through the 80s and you start thinking about when we have conflicts in the country, you also can see a correlation with the rise of football, how it gets tied together. So when you get to the you know end of the 80s, you go into the early 90s, you have the Gulf War. And this is where you really see the volume get turned all the way up on this kind of partnership. So you have, um, you have the NFL saying, look, we're in a war, but the show's going to go on. So you can't bring anything that like a camera, you can't have a radio because we're in war times. But what you can bring is flag. And they handed out flags and all of a sudden they wanted to paint the entire stadium with American flags. 
the commissioner of the NFL at the time said, quote, we've become the winter version of the 4th of July celebration. It was a conscious effort on the part to bring patriotism into the Super Bowl, according to Pete Rozelle, the former NFL commissioner. And they did. They had flags. They like airlifted somebody into the game. And it was too much fanfare and much success. And I think that you can see that really, um, you know, to a sold out stadium. And you see this same thing happen, of course, after September 11th and the Patriots, Bob Kraft, when they they win that um, Super Bowl say, we're all patriots now. Like, you can see how it's tied together. And then certainly, it went beyond kind of spectacle when the Pentagon and the Department of Defense paid millions of dollars, 6.8 millions of dollars, for patriotic displays during games in a paid patriotism scheme that paid teams to do, like, the troop reunions and to unfail the, like, American flag that went the length of the football field and all of these things were paid for by the State Department. So I think that we can't divorce the marriage of the military and militaristic language and spectacle from the growth of the spectacle of the Super Bowl itself because it was literally envisioned as this like hyper patriotic, rah rah Americana, carnival esque. 4th of July in in the winter. And and I think that we can see how we still see elements of that today. And we all pay for it, don't we? We pay for the police. We pay for the security. Every taxpayer pays for all of that going on. We pay for the stadium in many ways. We pay for the parking structures in many municipal senses. So it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to think about it that way too. And through the Department of Defense, we're also paying for more recruitment into the military because they always had those commercials on and they always used it as a recruitment tool. Absolutely. And like, it's not a coincidence that it's been, you know, tradition for presidents to appear at the Super Bowl, whether they're flipping the coin or giving a halftime show talk or doing a quick little interview. Um, You know, I think that it not only ties it together, but there are people like, well, America's favorite holiday is the Super Bowl. And you can see how it has become ingrained in American culture by being a kind of propaganda arm of the state in many ways, Um, but very subtly because also people like football, of course, they like to gather, but the fact that it has been increased in visibility and had all this production around it, um, we definitely can't separate from our tax dollars at work in ways that many of us aren't comfortable with. And of course, the Super Bowl is also famous for having some of the most pricey airtime for commercials, and that is central to it. Lindsay? <laughs> yeah, so it was fun to kind of look at this history because I didn't really know, like, how did the uh, Super Bowl become, like, this advertising giant? Because um, we kind of take it for granted. And actually, uh, when talking about... <laughs> When going with what Amira was just talking about, it's a, it's just, I think you all will see it's a weird uh, kind of marriage here. But it all basically started in 1984 when Steve Jobs decided that he was unveiling the Macintosh. And he decided he wanted a really, really big, um, splashy way to, you know, announce the Mac to the world. And in a Wall Street Journal piece, it said that someone suggested he should do it 
an ad at the Super Bowl. And Job said that he didn't know anyone that watched the Super Bowl. So he was very, like, hesitant to do it. But ended up going forward and, you know, in true rich person style, really went through it. This ad, this 60-second ad, was directed by Ridley Scott. I'm going to read a description of it. Um, It says it... The commercial begins in gray with an army of drones marching into an assembly as a big brother figure harangues them from a towering screen. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. The scene is intercut with shots of a blonde woman in a white tank top and bright red shorts on the run carrying a mallet pursued by stormtroopers. She bursts into the assembly and flings the mallet at the screen, unleashing an explosion and a blast of fresh air as a voiceover reads the text of a product launch scheduled for two days hence. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And And you'll you'll see see why why 1984 won't be like 1984. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. Um, Wow. (laughs) I wish you could see everyone's faces right now in the Zoom chat. But so basically this changed the advertising game. Like from this point on, um, it kind of got everyone to think creatively. But that commercial is still, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal said it's still the best commercial. Like nobody else has ever gotten close to like that level of ridiculousness. Um, And of course, we've seen ads take lots of different form since then we've had there was a period in the 2000s especially where it was the over sexualization of every single ad right like every single ad was like soft core there are two sides to go daddy there's the sexy side represented by bar raffaelli and the smart side that creates and (laughs) gotten a little bit past then now it's like in vogue to do like social issues and ads and everything um i do i do think like now you know, we can see them all online beforehand. It used to be really fun. Like, I do used to, to enjoy when, like, you had to make sure everyone you were watching with was, like, quiet during the commercials because you might miss, like, an ad that you wouldn't be able to see again. So that's kind of part of the Super Bowl. But just the fact that it, it began with this violent 1984 ad for Max. That's also so interesting, Lindsay, how you said that about the ads because it points out, like, tech has shifted so much where so many of us, we, we watch streaming. Like, that we don't watch yeah tv right and so like over the years thinking about how the football commercial has had to evolve or like why they're online first or what even is the utility because like maybe the super bowl is the only time you're actually watching (laughs) like i know sports for me are the only time where i'm actually watching something live but the idea of commercials themselves have become almost antiquated in that way and that's why it's worth it for these people to pay fifty million, you know, five million dollars for you know thirty seconds or whatever it is, because it is one of the only times all year that advertising is a thing, <laughs> you know, like in this way. And I would just mm-hmm. say, um, and. And we're going to switch from getting you all hyped up on how awful and militaristic all of this is. Um, but so I've been to a Super Bowl. And one of the things I noticed is like there's also all these ads that we can't see. Like every part of the experience is branded. And it's wild when you're like picking up like chapstick by da da da. And did it, you know, it's like literally everything. <laughs> 
And it, it was so weird to see it up close in person, but also they draw you in because we ha- like reach under your seats and pick up the flashlight sponsored by so-and-so. And we were like part of Madonna's halftime show and, you know, waving the, What's waving the light <laughs> at the Patriots first loss to second loss to the Giants in Indy, Indianapolis. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> It was, well, I didn't. No wonder you haven't brought that up before. <laughs> oh, I, you know what? It was actually a really great weekend. And it's when I stopped learning to care as much. Because I almost fought this guy who was like, oh, so sad. You came all the way from Massachusetts to see them lose. I said, actually, I took a train from Baltimore, bitch. And then I was like, that wasn't the point. I'm sorry. Okay. Can we get that on a shirt? Okay. <laughs> no. I, fighting, fighting spirit. Fighting spirit. But you know what's scary is that this is a mirror caring less. That means like this is like, like the mirror we know now yeah. is the mirror yeah. that doesn't care yeah. as much. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw such a breakdown as the tennis match that we saw together. It was absolutely amazing. All right. Well, switching gears. Uh, so this season has been unlike any other season leading up to the Super Bowl with the global pandemic trying to imagine why this season even happened at all why it had to happen and looking back what are your thoughts about this Lindsay? what are you thinking when you look back at this season do you think it was worth the risks that they took to get here no but i don't think any of this has really been worth it i mean i just think like it's a really hard thing for me to justify as someone who covers sports and who, you know, loves sports and who does enjoy sports and even now can get lost in games, but ultimately thinks like as a society, everything should have stopped much more so than it did. And especially I think the, you know, no, I don't think it was worth it, but it exists and it's happening. And um, I think that they did get through it relatively, I don't even want to use the, but if they were doing the irresponsible thing, they got through it rather responsibly on the knowing that it was already irresponsible. (laughs) But, you know, for me, a lot of just like what gets me the most and what really makes me feel just the ickiest is the pandering and the kind of using while we're playing in the pandemic, while we're um, kind of really encouraging people to gather, while we're putting bodies at risk and resources at risk then doing the pandering to the healthcare workers and pretending like, you know, trying to get the goodwill of that. So that's what's like really is the hardest to stomach for me. So you're referring to that there's 22,000 people that will be in attendance and they supposedly gave 7,500 tickets to yeah, healthcare like, yeah, workers? Yeah, and, and, you know, vaccinated healthcare workers to say thanks for the their service. So this is Roger Goodell's statement on NFL.com. These dedicated healthcare workers continue to put their own lives at risk to serve others. And we owe them our ongoing gratitude. We hope in a small way that this initiative will inspire our country and recognize these true American heroes. This is also an opportunity to promote the importance of vaccination and appropriate health practices, including wearing masks in public settings. And you know what? You know what the Super Bowl is going to do while they're having these, while they're allotting these healthcare workers? It's going to 
make people come together for parties, right? I mean, we just know people are going to come together indoors yeah. for parties, indoors at yep. bars. They're going to find a way because it's cold in most of the country to get indoors and together and to let their guard down. Um, we're also good. I'm sure they're going to be ridiculous watch parties. I'm sure whoever wins, there's going to be celebrating on the street. Well, especially because Tampa Bay is the first team to play a, a Super Bowl in their home stadium. Oh, right. And guess where it's not cold? Tampa Bay. Right. And yeah. so I, I think that you're absolutely right, Lindsay, that there's all these ripple effects and consequences to what the NFL has decided to do. And just to be clear, right, like this also was uh, required an enormous infrastructure and lots of money to the tune of $100 million in order to get this done. Yeah. There's 900, yeah. 954,000 tests, right? And this is a season that started where they knew they couldn't do a bubble like in the way that we saw with the W or the NBA um, or hockey. And so they just kind of charged ahead in the first few weeks of the season. You might remember being like, they're like, look, it's going great. Like we have these fancy little trackers that beep if you get too close to each other and this, that, and the other thing. And then a few weeks in, the virus worked its way through the NFL. And there was five games what rescheduled 10 games postponed no they canceled zero games mm-hmm. there were certain weeks that were so absurd because you had football on tuesday you had football like three thirty on a random afternoon you had many people who opted out of the season and i think mm-hmm. that it was absolute chaos coming down the stretch here and i know that the nfl is patting themselves on the back for having a much lower test positive rate than the general public. I know they're testing, they're patting themselves on the back from getting through this very strange season, but I don't think we should lose sight of the cost of that, like actual dollars and cents, but also as Lindsay pointed to the ripple effects, because there's multiple teams that allowed fans in, in particular, the Dallas Cowboys had a great deal of fans that they let in game to game. And we don't track those people when they go home to know if they were okay. And there's a way in which it normalizes those types of activities, like at the high school level, at the at the college level. And so, you know, I find that particularly infuriating and irresponsible. So, um, you know, I, I struggled to try to figure out who, like, could I even sort of stomach this? But there's a way in which I want to, you know, you want to connect with everybody at the same time. You don't, you know, you're watching people that do get joy out of it. I do hate to sort of kill everybody's buzz, you know, all the time about it. But it's a, yeah, Amira. It's probably a good time to say, don't go gather in person <laughs> to watch this. And if you want to gather with us virtually we'll be happy to host a super bowl watch party this is coming out when after the super bowl no before yeah before, before. we'll be happy to ha- host a super bowl watch party so you can commiserate with all of us but still feel connected yeah yeah I'm, that sounds good to me um that that's a great idea and I hope more of that happens. Um, so I struggled personally trying to figure out because I have no particular connection to either of these teams. So <laughs> I looked up the mayors. This is the way I work. Oh, Brenda. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. They're I'm laughing because it's so true. Much. I know. They're laughing because they know it's true. I started looking at the mayors and I came up with a draw. Uh, Tampa Bay Mayor Jane Castor is pretty cool, the first openly gay 
mayor. She mandated masks outdoors. She switched from being a Republican to a Democrat in 2015. She's had all of this flack and backlash for trying to make people actually be responsible. So I don't really know how she's going to deal with this particular event. Um, Then Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas, African-American and super involved in trying to get people in Missouri to wear masks, had a whole petition to remove him from office for that. So I like them both, so I came up with nothing. I hate both the team names. Anybody want to comment on Kansas City? I can tell you that Buccaneers, you know, making money off trading slaves in the Caribbean, Spanish Caribbean, is not a great feel for me. Yeah, certainly. And we know the Kansas City name is just another name that needs to fall. We've seen, obviously, the Washington football name change to many of our surprises. But, you know, if you tune into the Super Bowl, you'll see Kansas City and you'll see them doing the tomahawk chop and you'll see them still using indigenous, you know, symbols and and um, kind of rhetoric that is sort of to characterize and dehumanize Native Americans in ways that are very harmful. And that's continuing there with that team. Um, so yeah, it's not Is that a great matchup for, like, team names that are, you know... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and coming from Detroit, the only thing we had were colors. Really lovely colors. So we didn't have wins or talent. Um, Well, Barry Sanders. But um, I didn't come up with anything... Who I sat behind at the Super Bowl that I went to. Please don't. Please, I'll be so jealous. I don't think (laughs) I can continue recording. And so I really, I really struggled to come up with like any kind of colors, themes, even, you know, players. But Lindsay, I, I feel like you've already got somebody you're pulling for. I don't even even know if it's as much pulling for as it is like, first of all, like, you all know, I can't quit the Carolina Panthers and they're in a division with Tampa Bay. So I automatically just hate Tampa Bay, like that's a given. You hate your division rivals, right? Um, And then, of course, when you add Tom Brady to the mix, like I will never, you know, I will, like Tom Brady has had enough. Like there's been, we've had enough. Like I'm just so done. And so I think that um, for me, it's pretty easy to root for Kansas City, even though the name and some of their players uh, who have committed domestic violence and then, you know, are getting redemption narratives and all that. There's, there's a lot of ickiness, but within this, and look, I do like Patrick Mahomes. Um, and, you know, he's, of course, we talked about on the show before how he helped um, pay to make the arena in Kansas City, which name I can't even say, really, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Well, everything's so problematic, but a polling location on election day, he split the cost with Kansas City, which once again, the team should have just paid for all of that, but whatever. Um, But, you know, Mahomes has been good at speaking up and it's good to see a new generation of black quarterbacks and who are, you know, comfortable confronting the NFL on Black Lives Matter, on Kaepernick, um, course i don't know that getting the nfl to admit anything is really useful in the overall conversation but i guess it's better than ignoring it completely right um all we also can hear say like uh patrick mahomes wife Brittany is her name 
Actually, I think she's his fiance. Sorry, I don't think they're married yet. But um, she's pregnant and they've been together forever. But she's a, a part owner of the new Kansas City uh, NWSL team. And so we love to see that. So those are two reasons, kind of, you know, Mahomes' political activism and then his wife being an owner in the NWSL that make me like, and that they're, it's not Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm dying to know, Amira, for you, obviously big Patriots fan, longtime uh, Tom Brady lover. Uh, well, I don't think I was ever a long-time <laughs> so Tom I'm, Brady I'm putting lover. it on you. I'm putting it on you. <laughs> I'm making you own that. <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel to have, you know, the Patriots didn't have a good season and then here's Tom Brady in the Super Bowl with Rob Gronkowski and all this stuff. Like, how do, how does it feel for you? Well, it's so funny. So, like, I – and I we've talked about it on the show before. Like, I never really liked Tom Brady. I love the Patriots' defense. So, for me, it doesn't – I'm not, like, mortally wounded like some of these people who, like, pledge allegiance to him. And also, I didn't watch, like, any pandemic football. I think I watched Cam's first game or something, and then once Cam got COVID, I was like, I can't do this. Um, So I've been so checked out from the season that I was kind of like, oh, it's still happening, and oh, he's still playing. Um, So I would say that I'm fairly indifferent, but my mom is absolutely over the moon um, for two reasons. One, she has like followed Tom to Tampa Bay. She doesn't care much about that, but she loves watching him and Gronk. And so she's been rooting for them every Sunday and watching it. And also she grew up in Danville, Illinois, where much of their rooting interest is actually the Kansas City teams because of proximity. And so she is in love with Patrick Mahomes. She loves Kansas City. And so all season she has been calling her sister and they've been watching the Kansas City games together. And this is one of my adoptive moms. She's 83, y'all. Okay, so she's sitting in front of the TV watching at least six hours of football every week to watch her two boys play. And it's been a rough few months with her. She had a pacemaker put in and is taking it easy and the one thing that gets her out of bed is watching football on Sundays watching these two teams so last week when both of them made the Super Bowl she was over the moon and so now most of my feelings about the Super Bowl have been replaced because I just feel like this is her Super Bowl and she certainly is treating it like it's personally a game just made for her um, and <laughs> is just so overwhelmed she's like can they both just win so I think it's really interesting to see how people have been, you know, reacting to it both ways. But at least for her, having Brady back in the Super Bowl, I think she feels is like a continuation of the journey they had together. <laughs> to our um, and then Mahomes certainly is like the future. And I think she never thought she would see Kansas City thrive like this. So that's been exciting and a way to connect with her sister. Which brings me back to like what I said when Brady left. And my mom called, which is that these are the ways that it's emotional and our rooting interests are so often tied up in the community that we form around them and and or are born into and just like those connections. And I think to me, that's what football has always represented. And I see that for my mom, at least, that's still something that's really pure. Aw, so it's a win-win in some ways. All right, so I think we'd be remiss uh, to not mention something that's been in the media a lot, which is the diversity of coaching staffs in this Super Bowl, particularly Tampa Bay with four black coordinating coaches and two full-time women. For me, it's 
it's always sort of a research question how and when representation changes you know the structure of the field in which it's happening you know i struggle you struggle with the limits of representational politics thinking about you know what has clarence thomas done for african americans on the supreme court and when does representation what does it mean and when is it salvageable football anyway and at the same time you know it's really important to have those people on the field lindsay how what was your reaction this week to the diverse coaching staff yeah i mean look i think there's obviously the fact that we've gone through this whole head coaching cycle and there's been no been you know i think out of seven jobs one black head coach hired and so seeing more black assistant coaches which is great and black coordinators um which is great but it's it's frustrating to say the least because the pipeline's getting deeper but it's still clogged up at the top and i don't know if Mira's going to talk a little bit more about that um i get jaded sometimes about the representation stuff too i get jaded how it's framed with the first kind of a lot of times it's uncritically framed, right? Like you're, you talk about the first woman to do this or something without really acknowledging all the barriers that they had to face and the systemic barriers, right? It's it's framed as this like, you know, great feat of, you know, moral superiority when in actuality, like, you know, beating, I don't, I don't get, like beating the systems is just, I don't know. It's sometimes frustrating. But on the other hand, I can't deny that like representation is important and that it does pursue progress. I last year I talked with Jen Welter, who was the first woman hired to be a coach of any kind in the NFL. This is back in about 2015. And it was Welter was already working in a lower um, kind of like a, you know, semi-pro football league. So she was already on that path. And this was when Sarah Thomas who will be refing this game, uh, first woman to ref the Super Bowl, um, became the first full-time female referee in NFL history. And so after that historic hiring, a reporter asked Bruce Arians, who is the coach of Tampa Bay, but then was the coach of the Arizona Cardinals. So a reporter asked him during a press conference if there would ever be a female coach in the NFL. And Arians responded and says, the second woman proves that she can make these guys better, she'll be hired. And Walter heard that interview and, and heard that press conference, and that's what gave her the idea to basically cold call Bruce Arians and pitch herself as a coach. And she kind of like, there's this wild, like she called and pretended to be an assistant of her coach for the revolution, which was a team. And she kind of like finagled her way in there. Of course, she had the credentials, you know, but um, I just love that story that it was the first female referee that got the reporter to ask the question, right? And then hearing the answer to that question is what gave Jen Welter the idea to kind of pitch herself. And so look, it does matter. And um, it's good to see there's been a lot of Sam Rappaport is um, a Canadian, uh, shout out Shereen, who has been doing lots of work in the grassroots level in the NFL to try and get one more women involved in the game. Bruce Arians too. I mean, Bruce Arians, you know, I think hired two full-time women at Tampa Bay. That was the first time that's ever happened. He really um, has, I think, the most diverse coaching staff there is. So it, it matters, but the conversation can't stop uh, there, right? Absolutely. I mean, we just have to want more. 
And that doesn't mean we can't fight the very real barriers systemically within the system. But as we've just outlined, the system is not always worth saving itself. And I think that, you know, that's on display now. You can revisit my burn from last week, Jess's burn from the week before on the really ridiculous number of black coaches who didn't get considered really or or hired into head coaching positions. When I burned it last week, there was still one head coaching position open that has now been filled and not by Eric Benemy and other qualified black coordinators. So as we celebrate the black coordinators that will be on the field for the Super Bowl, which of which there are many, it's hard to, you know, celebrate them without seeing a ceiling over their heads. And you can even go back and revisit my conversation with Coach Mickey Grace, who's um, a scouting apprentice to the LA Rams, black woman from Philly. I really enjoyed talking to Mickey because I think that you can see that it's not just about representation, but the new ideas they're bringing with them into the system. And so often what happens is um, it's like the conversation, um, you know, about cops who want to reform or something like that, is that you come in at such a low level that it requires you to put your head down and really be a part of the system to rise to a a place within it where you can enact change. And I think so often, you know, there's a saying that like, you don't, tenure doesn't make you brave, right? Being a head coach is not going to make you brave if you weren't brave on the way up. And I think that sometimes this is the tension. This is the complication when we're talking about systemic change versus individual representation. And so like, as Lindsay pointed to, there's definitely ripple effects for individual representation. It doesn't matter. You get people flooded into this business. But I think what we're waiting for is to see the ways in which that the, the other ripple effects, ones that are perhaps more radical or more upending, um, that question some of these hard ingrained things or these military. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed connections or these, you know, flaunts of public health, whether it's from CTE to COVID in sports, whatever, who's going to be within the system that might be bringing different ideas to the fore um, that have been locked out of, of the conversation because they can't get a foot in the door. And so I'm all for doors opening. I'm all for taking steps through them. Um, but I think we have to ask for more and demand more and want more and not, you know, Like Lindsay said, the representation is not the mountaintop. It can't be. It just, it can't be. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. 
I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. And on this Thursday's interview, Lindsay talks with Lindsay Jones, senior NFL writer at The Athletic, about a Super Bowl like no other. It's going to be the COVID Super Bowl, a third capacity. It's going to be very weird. I'm going to Tampa in a couple days. Not really sure exactly what to expect other than it's going to be the weirdest football game I've ever been at. Now it's time for the burn pile where we take all the garbage in sports this week and set it metaphorically on fire. This week, I'm handing my burn to Shireen. It's a gift uh, to talk about the debacle in women's hockey. Thank you for giving me your burn, Brenda. Flamethrowers, it can be of no surprise what I intend to torch this week, incinerate, put out forever with the hottest and highest of flames. It is the absolute dumpster fire that imploded in women's hockey this week, specifically at the NWHL bubble, otherwise known as the N-double. It started with Erica Nardini, the CEO of Bristol Sports, who put out a video basically wondering why sports journalists, specific ones including friend of the show Marissa Ngemi, were critical of Barstool because isn't it a bastion of upholding everything that's good? No, there has been very well documented pieces, including one from our very own Lindsay Gibbs for Think Progress that absolutely did the research and the reports on how Barstool had a culture of harassment of women, including terrible history. They're known for being racist. The asshole in chief, uh, what's his name, Dave, Dave, whatever, Portnoy, has repeatedly used the N-word, and it's just unacceptable. In this video, Erica Nardini basically led her followers and all the legions of Barstool fans 
to the handles of those social media handles of those people who were then inundated, including a very specific social media manager of one of the teams who was completely inundated and therefore had to, again, lock down her private account and her work account because of the hate that she was getting. This is a huge problem. The Metropolitan Riveters have a player named Saroya Tinker, who replied to this video, said video by Erica Nardini. And, you know, Saroya Tinker being an amazing, very, very wonderful black player was the first to speak out and say we don't want you we don't want your money we don't need your money and we just keep it and so Soraya bravely said this and was then hit with a deluge of critique and whatnot but she was backed by Anya Packer and Madison Packer Madison being the captain and Anya being the head of the NWHL Players Association which is important because your team has to back you unfortunately not all of Soraya's teammates backed her Kelly Babstock did not, neither did Katie Burt, who went public and said they think uh, being with Barstool is a great idea. Now, the problem is, is that we're looking for people at this point who've been talking the talk to actually walk the walk. Where are the allies? Where are they? Who is coming forward to agree and support, not just what Soroya says, to which Erica was so sad because people were mean to her and she was ratioed on that tweet. So Dave Portnoy, released a video in which he he made some wild accusations and called for the jailing of Soria Tinker, which is so offensive on so many levels and absolutely blatantly racist. They're unapologetic. They don't understand their own problems and decided to create their, a hockey league, the Nardini Hockey Club, or what the sweatshirts say that they're now selling. This is garbage. It's terrible. And the worst part about this for me, is, you know, I, mean, I expect this stupidity and this carelessness and this recklessness from Barstool. I'm disappointed that no allies have come forward. Where is the PWHPA? Where are the players, the captains of the national teams? Where are they? Why are they not stepping up and being very firm and saying that we're not going to accept this? I hate all of it. Thanks to Hamal Javeri for her incredible reporting. Thank you to Natalie Weiner, who was one of the few who actually reported on this. This has to be different, and women's hockey must be protected at all costs. But more, most importantly, black women must be protected at all costs. And I want to take this all and burn it. Burn. 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 Amira. I have two kind of twin burns today. The thread is um, that black women deserve better. Black girls deserve better. Um, The first is Ethan Fournier, who is a deputy who works at Florida's Liberty High School. He's also um, the football coach at that school. Uh, News broke this week when multiple students filmed him body slamming a black girl student to the ground and knocking her unconscious. Students said they no longer feel safe at the school. I don't know if you've seen this video. I don't recommend you watch it, but you see students kind of gathering and then this officer slams this girl to the ground her head hits the ground and she goes unconscious the fact that he is not only a deputy you know which obviously points to the need to get you know police out of the schools but also a football coach so he's entrusted in and molding quote-unquote making men and it's disgusting to see she's currently suffering memory loss and headaches and if that wasn't enough we also learned this week of Seattle Seahawks offensive tackle Chad Wheeler, uh, who's technically free agent, so the Seahawks are trying to distance themselves from him. But reports came out this week that he had domestically abused his girlfriend, choked her out when he saw that she was uh, talking 
later said, oh, you're still alive, um, bloodied her face. Uh, it's, it's bad. It's not great. Um, and it's just disheartening to see like these men in and around this game, right. That have been, um, you know, just body slamming black girls or, or choking out black women. And, um, you know, you see the, the, the Seahawks are certainly now trying to distance themselves from, from Chad Wheeler. Uh, we'll see what happens in either of these cases. Um, we have documentation and videos, which we know is like literally the bare minimum that you need to even have people give a damn. Um, so we'll be watching both of these conversations um, to see where they go. And this is kind of an open-ended burn. I'm starting to light the match. I don't know how long this flame will be burning, but my guess is a long time. But I just want to take this space to say um, we stand with Black women and Black girls who are too often the victims of both domestic violence as well as state-sanctioned violence at the hands of police, but don't get nearly enough time as the WNBA showed us with Say Her Name campaign this summer. It really is important to highlight the stories of Black girls and women who face this type of violence, whether it's at the hands of a partner or at the hands of the state. And I just want to send my love out to both of those women involved in these incidents and burn the whole thing down. Burn. Lindsay. Yeah, it's time to circle back to one of our regulars, USA Gymnastics. A couple things USA Gymnastics has done um, that have come out this week. First of all, it's come out that USA Gymnastics, uh, in the last two years since it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, it has rung up at least $13.6 million in legal fees, according to the Southern California News Group. Maggie Nichols told USA Gymnastics they continue to fail us. It's been six years and there's really been no progress. Just attorneys doing the wrong thing, getting paid a lot of money. So they still have not reached a settlement with the gymnast and bankruptcy really puts a force field on everything else. As attorney John Nichols has said, you know, discovery for lawsuits is completely frozen. Insurance stuff is frozen and it just puts a roadblock to rebuilding the USAG. You know, the USOC took moves to decertify USA Gymnastics, but the bankruptcy froze that even. So the bankruptcy fr- freezes everything. Um, while lawyers get millions upon millions of dollars during this time and nothing goes to the athletes. So it's really disgusting. There was one anecdote in the OC Register story about how Maggie Nichols was, um, one of her complaints is how, you know, she was abused by how they limited how much food she could have, you know, during competitions, how USA Gymnastics would just feed her nothing. Meanwhile, there was a $23,000 bill for these lawyers food for three days. And so just the dichotomy of that is just disgusting. And also, meanwhile, USA Gymnastics spent just $900 on Safe Sport uh, in February of 2020. So when you just compare that, it's just absolutely mind boggling. So there's another thing going on that's not, I'm not quite done. Um, USA Gymnastics has also signed a contract with Flow Gymnastics to be a five-year partnership with Flow Sports so that Flow Sports will have access to a lot of their competitions, which will be streamed behind a paywall, which of course makes it less accessible. But the big problem here is that in 2014, 
Olympic and world champion Michaela Maroney was one of many celebrities who had her iCloud hacked and explicit photos of her were posted on the internet and Flow Gymnastics posted an article about the hack which included a link to the explicit photos. So this is back in 2014. So USA Gymnastics uh, only um, revoked Flow Gymnastics credentials for a year and now they're partnering with them for five years. So they're partnering with a group that exploited one of its uh, athletes. It's absolutely disgusting and just, you know, you're back and this won't be the last time you say gymnastics. You need to get your shit together. Burn. 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 So after all that burning, now we're going to turn towards a more positive theme. The wonderful people trying to change all of the things that we've just tried to burn. In memoriam this week, Amira, who do we have? I want to say rest in peace to Coach John Cheney, Titan in American college basketball, obviously from my beloved Temple University where he coached from 82 to 2006. Fun fact, watching his Temple teams play the UMass Minutemen in the Mullen Center as a kid is what made me want to go to Temple. I was determined to be an owl and, and of course that's where I ended up. Um, I really want to say that the best thing that you will read on this is by my friend Tyler Ricky Tynes over at The Ringer. Please go read um, his article called The Gospel of John Cheney, where he really captures what Cheney meant to Philadelphia, specific North Philly, what he meant to Temple, what he meant to um, how he embodied a place um, that that is so rich and has given me so much. Tyler, I'm just going to quote from his article here um, to give you a taste of this. Um, He said he made the entire country believe in the excellence of black boys forgotten by major universities, industry, cities, and the rest of the world, reminding them that there was promise pent up in their bones and talent stored in their bodies. He was one of us. Hell, he was us. He lived and died as a god walking on broken concrete under cherry banners down North Broad Street, begging the world to crack him in the jaw just so he could see blood run from his nose and laugh because he was alive. And I think that just embodies John Cheney so much and what he gave to North Philly, what he gave to Temple. And just personally for me, I'm Texas born, um, mass raised, but definitely Temple made. And Coach Cheney is the embodiment of so much that I and so many people love of the resiliency of of that area and that space that he put on his back. Um, so happy trails, rest well, and sleep well, coach. Lindsay, who's the fire engine of the week? Naomi Osaka, tennis star and now part owner of the North Carolina Courage NWSL team. As I told people, I look, you can't deny I moved to North Carolina and then weeks later, Naomi Osaka buys into the uh, team. Um, I am not, you know, you can't say it's not related, right? You can't. You <laughs> Clearly. Can't. So Clearly. I'm so excited about this. This is, I just love this development of women in sports supporting other women in sports, literally financially in ownership. Like more of this, please. And our Fire Lord of the Week is Sarah Thomas, who will be the first woman to officiate a Super Bowl. She began refing high school varsity games in her native Mississippi, went on to be the first woman to officiate a major college game in 2007, 
and has joined the NFL in 2015. So we'll be excited to see her. Amira, who's the Inferno of the week? Yeah, Hall of Famer Ken Griffey Jr. has been named Senior Advisor to the Baseball Commissioner. He will consult with the Major League Baseball on a number of issues, a special emphasis on baseball operations, youth baseball development, and he will serve as an ambassador at youth initiatives and special events. Congrats to you, Ken Griffey Jr. And can I get a drum roll? Linz, who is the torchbearer of this week? New York Liberty Star and WNBA Players Association Vice President Lasia Clarendon, who shared on social media this week that they had top surgery at the beginning of the year. I'm just going to read from Lasia's post. It's hard to put into words the feelings of seeing my chest for the first time free of breast, seeing my chest the way I've always seen it and feeling a sense of gender euphoria as opposed to gender dysphoria. Freedom, freedom at last. I'm not usually scared to share news publicly, but the amount of hate, myths, and ignorance surrounding trans and non-binary people's existence actually had me debating sharing this joy. I want trans people to know and see that we've always existed and no one can erase us. I want people to remember that my freedom is your freedom because none of us are free until we are all free. The WNBA Players Association, uh, WNBA Commissioner, and New York Liberty all released statements of support um, for Lasia. And Lasia said online that they were very scared of how their peers in the WNBA would react, but that they've just been flooded with support. So congratulations, Lasia, for your euphoria. It is late January. Ew, ew, ew. In dark times, what's good that is keeping you afloat, Lindsay? Uh, what's good is WNBA free agency is a chaotic mess, and I love every second of it. You know, just to share, I've just been, January was a month that I thought would be a very um, productive month for me, that I thought I had a lot of hope for this month because of uh, my move was Dunnish and I was in one place, but instead it was a month where everything caught up with me and where my mental health really, really, really took a dive um, and showed that progress is not linear by any means and that sometimes uh, your body and mind can have delayed reactions to dramas and to things. But, um, you know, what's good for me is, is not that, of course, but is finding coping mechanisms and trusting in people and trusting in myself to get out of this and to get back to being myself. And I've been doing that and I have a lot of hope. And I'm so grateful for the Burn It All Down fam for helping be a part of that. And um, my mom gets the second dose of the vaccine this week after a very, very chaotic um, period. And as many of you know, she's in a nursing home. And so, you know, especially susceptible to things right now. So that is definitely what's good. Oh, oh, my cousin had twins. My cousin had twins. Uh, This is my second cousin to have twins in like a year, which is bizarre because twins don't run in our family. Um, And uh, so congratulations, Irene and Thomas. I cannot wait to meet Jean and Walter. Yay. Amira? 
Yeah, um, so we're recording this podcast today on January 31st, which is Jackie Robinson's birthday. He was born January 31st, 1919. And that's apt because my what's good is that um, a book that I contributed to called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson has in his legacy is coming out next week. Um, this is edited by Michael Long. It features a foreword by Ken Burns and Sarah Burns and David McMahon. Kevin Merida writes the afterword and me and Howard Bryan and Yahoo Williams and, and a bunch of other people have pieces in it thinking about the legacy of Jackie Robinson today. Um, it's dedicated to Rachel, of course. And I have a chapter in there about Jackie's support um, or kind of support, uh, complicated support of black women in sports. And I'm really excited to see this baby out, out in the place in the world where people can like pick it up and read it. So 42 today out now. Yay. Yay. Everybody buy it. Buy two, buy three. <laughs> My what's good was the final of the Copa Libertadores, which is the South American club championship. It was between Palmeiras and Santos and it would not be an exaggeration to say it was one of the most boring, choppy, and violent games that I've seen in a very long time. But true to the history of the tournament, it was amazing at the end. A hundredth minute goal, uh, which was just a kind of quick screamer to end it. And the drama at the end is that the ball went out. Um, one of the Palmeiras players went to go grab it and the coach of Santos inhibited his picking it up, picked it up himself, played a little keep away and got a red card. Kuka, who is the coach and was wearing a Virgin Mary and Baby Jesus shirt, then uh, promptly threw himself without a mask into the crowd. He is terrible. That was a terrible idea, but... um. It was still some Libertadores drama, and I appreciated it. So that was really what was good um, recently. Good fun. It never fails. What we're watching this week, now that the Libertadores is over, the NWHL semifinals and finals will be on NBC Sports on February 4th and 5th. It is the first time that the NWHL has been on broadcast television, so tune in and support. The Australian Open starts next week, and it is a big week for women's college basketball. Thursday, starting at 8 p.m., you have Tennessee versus Mississippi State. Sunday, 4 p.m., Texas A&M versus Tennessee, and then a big, big Monday on the 5th between number 10, Arizona, and number 11, Oregon, and then number 4, South Carolina versus number 3, Connecticut. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. Especially now more than ever, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by the wizard Martin Kessler and Shelby Weldon extraordinaire does our website and social media. This is the last regular episode produced by Martin and we're eternally grateful for his help and guidance, energy, and friendship over the past six months. We'll miss you, Martin. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We're on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, for previous episodes, transcripts, and links to the show notes. From there, you can email us directly or go shopping at our Teespring store, and there's links to the Patreon. 
a special thank you to our patrons for your support. Always, always.